footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone, thanks for joining me once again on Footballers' Lives. In this second series, we focus in a little bit more on players who've transitioned away from the game. And today's guest is a man who's embarked on a career that's a world away from his playing days in the late 80s and 90s. Lee Sanford played top flight football for Portsmouth and also proved to be a popular and long-serving player at Stoke City and Sheffield United, eventually making 626 appearances as a professional. After retiring in the early 2000s, Lee transitioned into life on the trading floor and now runs courses demonstrating how anyone with a bit of drive and ambition can trade from the comfort of their own homes. This is Footballers Lives with Lee Sanford. Lee, let's take you back. Christmas 1985 was when I got my first ever BMX bike, but your Christmas present that year was becoming a professional footballer for Portsmouth. So how did that such a monumental life event come about? Incredible. Absolutely incredible, Richard. Um, my dream, you know, I'll be, I'll, be watching, I'll be watching on the TV the FA Cup finals and watching Liverpool and Tottenham get to FA Cup finals. And then it was my dream to actually become a professional football player and get paid for it. I mean, I first started off at £14 a week as an apprentice and then you know soon got a big uplift at 35 pounds a week so i thought i was loaded mate um but yeah getting paid for playing football was just incredible and portsmouth gave me that start richard so it was fantastic mate and it was in the second tier i think of english football at the time uh i was going to ask you how good were your negotiating skills back then but you've just <laughs> said it i don't suppose you do negotiate your first ever apprentice contract you get 14 quid and that's your lot Exactly. Well, the manager was Alan Ball and he told me, this is what you're getting, son. This is what you're getting. But I'll tell you what, though, Richard, I did have a, um, I had the first lady agent, mm. Rachel, I can't remember her surname, and she was, uh, yeah, my agent at, at Portsmouth. And she got, we went to the PFA dinner and she came along with us and no women were allowed um, at that dinner. But she came along and um, yeah, ended up taking the PFA to court over this sexual discrimination or whatever. So yeah, and then they eventually wives and ladies into the PFA dinner uh, awards that we have every year, they had every year. So that, yeah. That is absolutely astonishing. We're only talking the mid eighties and women are, I mean, when you hear stories like that, you immediately associate them with golf memberships. You know, I think only mm. fairly recently, there are some golf courses in Scotland that have opened up to women, but, but I suppose the other thing is, a female agent was such a novelty and would still be a novelty now in professional football circles, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's out of the dark ages, isn't it? We know, you know, we, we, we think about things. Yeah, I mean, I'm a member of the golf course club around here and predominantly men still. Yeah. But there's some cracking women golfers. I mean, I love watching the women golfers on the TV because their swings are a little bit like us amateur swings, you know, but... Um, yeah, it's strange times then, but yeah, it was uh, all very bizarre, but times have changed for the better. Well, you talk about the dark ages and times changing. Give us an idea what football was like in the mid-1980s compared to what we see now, and what was Fratton Park like as a place to play your trade? What an atmosphere Fratton Park was. I mean, the, the crowd was incredible. I was so lucky to play for three fantastic football fans, Stoke City, Sheffield United and Portsmouth to start off with. And the football club 
you know, it was just so old. The actual ground was old. I remember as an apprentice was painting the, the turnstiles and the, and the stands. We used to have to paint those every pre-season as an apprentice and get, uh, obviously get paid 14 pounds a week for it. Um, but uh, it was a fantastic club. The atmosphere was amazing. I owe everything to Portsmouth. They, they, they brought me up. They, uh, I fell in love with the club. They fell in love with me at a young age. I felt warm to the club and it was brilliant. And um, yeah, I had a really good time at Portsmouth. Mm. Uh, it was, it was very special. It's very, very special to me these days. They gave me that leg up and start really. So yeah, good times, good times. Yeah but you must have been a really self-confident lad at the age of 17, going into that first team dressing room. When you think of Mick Shannon's, your Noel Blake, oh, yes. your Vince Hilaire's, your Kevin Dillon's, your Kenny Swain's. So what gave you that innate confidence to be able to walk in there and, you know, stand tall amongst these players who've done a lot in the game already? I remember playing my first game and it was Mickey Shannon's 500th game. And I was playing my first game, and there was big news about it um, because it was a good news story. But standing tall, um, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it was made up. <laughs> it was made up, Richard. You, you know, you can, you can literally put this persona on and, and false image that you are confident, but down inside, really. I think most players, when they're so young and not trained on the psychology, are actually nervous and um, it can take you under it took me under against Liverpool playing for Portsmouth uh, I literally choked at Anfield playing that season for Portsmouth um, and yeah we got promoted to the, the now Premier League it was the first division then and I was 19 and I went to uh, Anfield and it just overwhelmed me I went out on the pitch and um, you know just looking at that stadium that historic stadium and I just choked. I choked. Um, and I never, I never knew how to handle it. And I spent the whole game trying to not touch the ball because my mind literally overtook, you know, my, it was too powerful for me. I couldn't control it. I'd no, we'd had no psychological training in those days. Um, but I vowed never to have that again. And I went to, to actually see somebody about that after that event. But now they've got so many sports psycho psychologists and football psychologists. We didn't have that in, in those days. You had to get on with it. You're one of the lads. You know, you've got to drink as many pints as possible to be accepted. Mm. Um, and, and that's really interesting. Yeah. What, had your teammates and your manager, Alan Ball, and the opposition players for that matter, had they realised that you'd choked and that psychologically you'd gone and that you were trying to hide on the football pitch and were they taking advantage of it? Or do you think in hindsight you may, have be, you may have built it up to more than what it was and you were maybe getting away with it? I was getting away with it, yeah. I was getting away with it. I think I touched the ball about four times the whole game. So I, just, I was literally so disappointed in myself. Um, I, I, don't think I, you know, I, I don't think they were aware of it. It's just that Liverpool were too good for us on the day as well, beat us 4-0. Um, and yeah, it was just, that was a massive learning experience for me. Mm. And that set me up. That set me up for the rest of my life, really, from where I am, to, where I am today, is that you're always progressing. You always got to be learning. And especially yeah. the mindset is so powerful. Well, that's partly uh, what this podcast is about, you know, learning from those mistakes, but also learning from life experiences like that. But it's really interesting about hiding on a football pitch because I spoke to Paul Parker, who was a good mate of mine in Singapore not long ago, World Cup semi-final, Italia 90. He said after that own goal he scored, he tried to hide for the rest of the game. 
But then all of a sudden, 15 minutes from the end, he's put a ball into the box and he's, he's zero to hero again. So that's really interesting. So what was the process like of going to actually see someone? And did someone advise that you go to see someone? Or did you have the maturity as a 19-year-old lad to go and actually do it yourself? No, I didn't have the maturity of that age. I, I was dating an older woman. <laughs> she ah. literally was much more obviously mature than me. She had her own business. She... Um, she, you know, wanted to self-develop as well. And she just took me to see this, the psychologist. It wasn't a psychologist. It was a counsellor those days, which is mm. a stigma, isn't it? Counselling. You're going to get counselled. Mm. And it was just mindset. And it just went through the whole reason why I choked. And we worked on it. That self-talk we went walked through. But I certainly didn't have the um, desire to go and see somebody myself. I was sort of like pulled along, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was brilliant. Mm. And how many sessions did you have? Uh, I think we ran for about three months. Okay. Uh, I loved it and um, really enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed sports psychology to this day and the mindset and the self-development stuff. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, I suppose, in business soon. But yeah, I've, I've been very fond of that self-development and uh, how power the, powerful the mindset is. Yeah. I mean, that was a very opportune life moment. You know, you said you were dating uh, this person. Because that is a butterfly moment, isn't it? I mean, for someone to go and see a psychologist and admit weakness, you, you just wouldn't have done it, would you? I think that's absolutely fascinating. But as well as the sports psychology and having benefited from that, you also need mentors. So how important was Alan Ball for you in those early days? I mean, it was great. Uh, absolutely fantastic, he was. I mean, he was, he'd won the World Cup. He was a hero to the nation. He was a legend. And I had him, Richard, actually as a schoolboy. He was coaching the schoolboys. So I was so lucky to have him. He got really close to my dad as well. Um, and uh, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I played for the reserves. Um, I was 15, I think, when I played for Force of Reserves. Borley actually come and picked me up from my home. Mm. Uh, took me to Brentford. We played the reserve game. And he had to take me back because I had school the next day. But he said to me after the game, so look, I just need to just go and pick somebody up. Uh, from the round the ground at Brentford and then I'll take you back home okay thank you thank you Gaffer thank you Alan thank you and so as we drove around the corner this tall guy with good looking blonde hair jumped in the car and it was Bobby Moore so <laughs> I've got Bobby Moore I've got Alan Ball sitting in the front seat and Bawley says uh, Bobby this is Lee I went oh hello you know it's two legend World Cup winners and they just chatting away ignoring me and I, I you know uh, absolutely fantastic he was brilliant Bawley it's so sad what happened to uh, to, to the guy I, he was my dad in football really mm. um, you know he was the one that sort of and he took me to Stoke City mm. um, and his philosophy was work hard play hard you know train hard train hard and I did that the whole way through my career trained like I played Mm. and uh, yeah he, he really did lay the foundations for my sort of uh, philosophy in life and outlook really yeah, and he was good he was good on a one-to-one -one basis as well as on a team basis then I think on a team basis he I think he lacked some skills with with, with football management mm. um but he was such a great motivator I think Borley would all the, I thought the gaffer Borley would always be better as a as a right-hand man second you know, second in command, I think manager, mm. and would have had like a Laurie McMenemy above him to have to have run and managed the the psychology of the team, mm. and Borley to do all the coaching and motivation, really. But yeah, 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 brilliant. Yeah, and like you say, he took you up. You've given us a memory from 
that season that you had in the top flight against Liverpool. But have you got any better memories? Some of the players you came up against and just the whole experience of being in top flight football. I just playing against Tottenham Hotspur, my childhood team, was just incredible. Um, playing against people like Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, mm. I mean, absolute legends. And and Hoddle was and still you know is my hero. I just loved him as a Tottenham fan, mm. and it was just incredible. We just went to every ground. Every it was a childhood dream. It's like I was just floating or just having this whole football season dream. Mm. You know, Everton. Um, all the big clubs and Liverpool again and Manchester United, Brian Robsons and Gordon Strachans and oh, it's just incredible, Richard. And, and you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I just, as soon as we were in that first division, we were out of it. And you know, that thing getting established for one season. Mm. If you stay in for one season, you can develop. You can develop. I, should, I look back and that one regret. I should have taken it a bit by the horns mm. that season and really sort of, um, um, sort of try to impact myself on the game a bit more that season. But um, we didn't. And it was just incredible playing at all those legendary stadiums that were once um, that were once here. Yeah. Do you look back on your time at Portsmouth being slightly tarnished with the way it ended with John Gregory? Because he, he seemed to freeze you out, didn't he, when you moved mm. to Stoke? And how was yeah. it handled? Yeah, it, yeah, agree. Absolutely, you're spot on. I think, you know, the, the new chairman came in uh and uh, the manager came in john and he just wanted his own players mm. and some good players came in gavin Maguire, Ryan corn and um mike fillery and stuff but you know it, it, I, yeah it was like you know i i, I love how could i play for any other football club when you get brought up through the ranks as a child how can you go and play somewhere else you don't think you are going to do that and i did get freezed out then but you know and then at 12 midnight alan ball phoned me one evening uh, and said, son, you're coming to Stoke City tomorrow. Okay, okay, where is Stoke City? Where is Stoke-on-Trent? Um, <laughs> and so I jumped in the car the next morning, drove up to um, Stoke City and signed, signed that day. Yeah. Yeah. I was led um, by my heart a bit, I think. Uh, <laughs> le yeah, led by your heart. But again, it, you know, it was a club with traditions. But I suppose, again, it's difficult in football when a manager like Alan Ball or whoever brings you in and then they're moved on quite quickly. But I think you enjoyed it under Lou Macari when he came in. And did that change things for you in terms of your perspective on fitness? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, um, Lou, Ballie was uh, all about training with the ball and doing some sprints and doing some long discs, but Lou was all about fitness, fitness. And I actually needed Lou at that time. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was drinking, I was going out the lads. Um, the culture then was, you know, you drink after training, you go out and have a few beers because I wasn't married. I didn't have children. Um, and then Lou came in and just got us all fit. And then we started to do really well. And he brought his own players in as well. I managed to prove to him that I was good enough to be in the team. And um, yeah, I think, you know, I look back, I saw Lou uh, a couple of years ago, we had a reunion and I actually thanked him for, for that uh, because I think, you know, I might've gone down the wrong road eventually and just fizzled out. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened, but he got me really fit and uh, I started playing really well and yeah. we got some success promotion and stuff. Yeah, it's good. And then him going to Celtic was a bit of a bitter pill really for Stoke because maybe they could have gone on and achieved a lot more. But it certainly revitalised you, didn't it? Because top flight player at 20, but then two or three years later, you're in the third tier and maybe yeah. you're kind of questioning yourself a little bit. Or did you still have that self-belief? Uh, I mean, at Portsmouth, 
you know, I was hearing rumours that Liverpool were looking at me. Dalglish was watching, and I could have gone to Liverpool. Um, and and then, I, yeah, you're exactly right. I go to Stoke City to start to push it, you know, into the into the Premier League First Division, or, mm. and, and it didn't happen. Well, we got relegated that season. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't stay up. And now I'm in the now we're in the doldrums. We're in the third division. So mm. what, what do we do here? And the club was at the worst position it had ever been. Lou came in and started to to progress. And then we started to do really well. We we got into the playoff semi-finals. We got beat by Leicester. And you just don't know, do you? Mm. One turn in your whole your whole career takes a different route, mm. different you know direction. And it just wasn't meant to be. I'd love to have played in the Premier League and. Uh, we got, you know, going on to Sheffield United next, but, you know, we got beat uh, also in the semi, in the final of the playoffs. Yeah, yeah so uh, who knows, mate? Who knows? You can't look back. You no. can't look back. You've got to look forward. I, I look back at my career and I think, you know, I, I was proud of myself. Could have done things different. Uh, a few failures in there, but that's fine. I suppose failure, as Walter Brunel says, that failure is the tu- tuition of success, isn't it? So, I don't know. That's what it is, mate. Yeah, and you still make... Th- what was it? 325 appearances. Now I read something yesterday. You were in vice Stoke vice chairman, John Coates picked his all time <laughs> Stoke city dream team. And you were very much in that. So you were very well thought of in those parts. I, I loved it. And I, and I got, I got, I got very close to the fans. I lived, I lived in the town. So I'd go out and I'd speak to the fans, um, you know, and I, 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 I had a passion for Stoke, Stoke, Stoke the area. And I still do to this day. Yeah, and yeah, they're brilliant, great fans. Yeah, a friend of mine who was a Stoke fan did say that he'll never forget a tackle that you made on Andy Kennedy at Blackburn. Can you yeah. remember that? I mean, would you, is yeah. it, would it be fair to say that you were uncompromising at times? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like me at the start in my career. I wasn't really in. I was more of a ball player type defender, <laughs> midfield player. I was actually a midfield player. Then got taken to the back four, left back. Um, and, and then I sort of got brought up with the likes of Mickey Kennedy and Billy Gilbert and Noel Blake. And they started kicking people. So I, I started kicking people at Stoke City and it went down really well. They loved it. It would get the fans going. And so I'd, you know, do some proper tackling. And that's what I was getting paid for, wasn't I? So, yeah, there was some, you know, that, that, that was a, you know, he, um, yeah, he, uh, I think he went, he gave, he went down for a penalty really softly. And then the next tackle, I managed to sort of go through him, which was quite, interesting a bit of fun gets the crowd going though doesn't it i mean you don't see that today do we (laughs) you wouldn't last five minutes doing that would you but i think the fact my my mate said you walked up to a stand innovation after that that's right yeah yeah and i remember i mean but probably santa santa press i understand why he done that and i it was pretty high it was pretty high um but yeah yeah it's great times that was one of many richard that was one of many Slightly different game, but then you moved to Sheffield United. I think Howard Kendall was manager, wasn't he? You'd obviously won so much as manager of Everton. Why did you move to Sheffield United? Well, there was, um, I was, Lou was, I think, was it Lou there? Or might, Lou might have left anyway. Go to, I think Lou was there still at Stoke. He might come back. Um, yeah, Adrian Heath was the instigator here. Adrian lived in Stoke on Trent, just outside a place called Baldwin's Gate area, Whitmore. And there was a pub that we would go to for a drink with uh, two on Sundays. And um, that was the first time he said, look, you know, how we're interested in you at Sheffield United. Um, And it was three quarters away through the season. Um, But 
I think the deal's done, but nothing's happened. I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. What, what, what are you on about? I'm leaving Stoke City. He said, yeah, I think the deal's done by the chairman and um, Sheffield United uh, people. Okay. I didn't know anything about it. And everyone was talking about it. And then at the end of the season, I got the phone call and then went to Sheffield United with Howard. And then we flew, I think we flew out to Singapore straight away on tour. And Howard loved the drink. And that was his culture within the team. And so I went from really fit football player to really unfit. That was the worst preseason ever. And Howard liked play hard, train hard. And um, yeah, he was great. What a manager. Motivational, knew, knew the game inside out, just like Borley. And I was just very proud to play for such a, such a manager. And the team was building to go into the Premier League. And they were building a team. And they brought some great players in, some good players. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. And yeah, and Don Atchison's, um, you know, and it was, it was a successful season. And then uh, it all happened, all ended, uh, unfortunately, with the playoff final against Wolves, where we, uh, we got beat 1-0. Yeah. Yes. And then I think Steve Bruce was instrumental in turning you from a left back to a centre half. Is that right? Well, yeah, I played a bit. Yeah, I played a bit. Brucey came in. Um, and I liked him as well. You know, I really did like him. He dropped me straight away. Then I just carried on working hard in training. and ended up, you know, playing, being the, being the first team, being the number one choice, really, at the centre-half position. Um, and, I've, you know, I've had a lot of managers in my time. And everyone comes in. They want to change it up. And I would just, my philosophy is work hard, work harder. Prove to them that I deserve a place, and I did. And so I got in the team, played centre half, and uh, then he disappeared as well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's we just ended the up... nature, nature of football, isn't it? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you've got to prove yourself all over again. Funnily enough, a, a Sheffield United mate of mine who supports the club, he said that you're a good player who didn't play as often as he should. So there you go, mm. another another compliment. Well, that's because of the managers, Richard. The amount of managers are coming. I'd have to like start to reinvent myself every single time. (laughs) (laughs) And Neil Warnock was another one who came in. Now, do you remember anything of this Caribbean tour? Oh, hang on. How do you know about this? Well, apparently there were a couple of Navy lads who were, who were out drinking with the, with the fellas out there. (laughs) And is it right that you invited them to sit on the bench for a friendly the next day? And one of them ended up getting a game. Yeah. Oh yeah, possibly, mate. Possibly. Uh, that was, that trip was dangerous. That was, I mean, Neil Gaffer. You know, he must have. What is going on here? Yes, uh, all true, mate. All true. Um, but I won't name the goalkeeper's name. Diamond Tracy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were so glad at one night, and we were so we would come back. I mean, we were drinking all these cocktails that they serve out there. I mean, it just didn't know it wasn't, it wasn't a pint of bitter, it was cocktails. Yeah, well, rum uh, punch is so oh, easy leaf. to drink, you don't know where you are, you know, it's just like pop, lethal, lethal. And, um, yeah, we'd gone out, we'd gone on a session, and uh, the next we had a game the next day. I actually couldn't play, I was still hung over. I said to Gaffer, There's no way I can play Gaffer. Um, and Simon was. He was worse for wearing goal. And the game had started and it had gone on for 10, 20 minutes. And Simon in goal decided to turn around, walk to the goal to get a bottle of water to have a drink. And as he was doing that, somebody shot 
from the halfway line. <laughs> and as he turned round, he was getting his water in the back of the net and the ball went in the goal. The gaffer went absolutely bonkers at him. Absolutely crazy. And um, yeah, the, you know, he, he said, you're an absolute disgrace, a lot of you, a lot of you. But it was the culture those days. And we've been, we've been stuck in a hotel room you know, we'd had a long flight, stuck in a hotel room. There was no fun and games until we sniffed a little bit of a, a window of opportunity. And, and then we went out and, you know, and had some fun with that yeah. fun punch, lethal. Yes. No, you wouldn't get away with it in the social media days, would you? Oh, I, just, I mean, just imagine. I've, I've said that to my friends recently. If there was photograph, uh, cameras, mobile phones, you would be, you'd be hammered in the press. At a, on a regular basis you'd soon learn very quickly though <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah now at what stage of your career did you start thinking about a life after football uh, about 27 okay uh, yeah i carried on dating this older lady and um, she had her own business i decided i got into i said she's going back a bit i got into the psychology of football and life in general and so i went to manchester met uh, while I was at Stoke City and done a sports science degree. Now, the PFA, uh, our football union, um, it was their first, it was their pilot. They, they tried this sports science and coaching degree uh, at Manchester Met. So I literally went on that uh, and done, we did three and a bit years on that. And it was a success. It was brilliant. So I've come out with a... Um, Bachelor of Honours in Sports Science and Coaching. And so I started thinking about the coaching side of football, but also had that interest in um, business because she was running her own business as well, Sports Centre in Stoke-on-Trent. And also I was just interested in stocks and shares and how, and, and how that sort of um, worked. Mm. So it's sort of around the 27 age that I got into it. And um, yeah, just started learning. And then I started, I got my sports science degree, I got my coaching badges, and then I got like um, fitness coach, gym coaching badge and so on. And I, you know, I was fully qualified. I would suggest having spoken to a lot of retired footballers that you have been just about the most forward thinking of any of them. So I'm assuming there weren't many of your peers around at the time who were going down a similar route. Yeah, a lot of the players, yeah, the, the, no, that's right. The, the actual team at that time, Stokesy, I can't remember any of them actually getting going on courses, I might be wrong. They were probably doing their coaching badges, but not particularly doing things around business or, or other things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I came out of school with absolutely nothing. So I had to catch up on reading and writing <laughs> at the university. I'm serious though, you know, I mean, I, I come out of school with nothing and I went into just football and you don't have to write a lot. You know, only your signature, your autograph. How do you catch up on all that sort of stuff? And uh, at the age of 27, it, it's crazy, isn't it? Crazy. Yeah. Well, how do you think you would have been equipped to retire from the game at 33 or whatever if you hadn't done that? What on earth would have been the challenges you'd have faced? Yeah, and crazy. I mean, just going back slightly, I mean, at the end of the third year of that degree, my lecturer said to me, do a master's in sports psychology. And I'd had enough of like the, the education as it go into university every single day or every couple of days a week. And I didn't do that masters in sports psychology. He said to me, you would have been the only football player that's played well over 500 games or whatever games I'd played up to then and had a masters in sports psychology. I mean, there was no sports psychologist in football then at all. 
-hmm. And I decided, I went into a sliding doors thing, where I went down that route instead of going down that route. Now I could be, I could have been the first sports psychologist, football psychologist in football clubs at that time, mm. playing it and having a master's degree. Um, but I didn't take that route. Oh, and I regret that a little bit. I don't regret much, but I do regret that, that I could have done that. But um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, sorry, so ask the question again. Do, do, well, do, uh, no, picking up on that, I mean, do you think footballers should be encouraged more to go down that route? Because it would seem quite obvious that someone who has been in the game, someone like yourself, would then take a qualification in psychology and then have a double-barreled experience approach to work with a football club. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, these players, I mean, you're talking about players today in general or then? Well, any time. And do you think there should be more responsibility put on football clubs and unions to really encourage these players to go on these courses? Or is it a case of, you know, you, you, can't, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? Is it a situation like that? Yeah, well, I'm pretty much out of football now completely. Um, I mean, them days... We had nothing. The PFA, I think, was hopeless. Hopeless them days. They did some good things for me. They give me, they paid for my education. But some of the stuff actually leading players to water to actually do that, it was pretty zero or it was just started. And now, if they walk out of football, if you walk out of football now, even at lower level, lower level, I'm not talking about the premiership boys, if they walk out of football now and you're not equipped to the world ahead, then... It's crazy. I mean, it's never been a better time for people to get educated from not just football, all walks of life. It's on, go online, buy a course for 15 quid and you can learn a new skill. And football players, with the resources they have now, I'm not talking Premier League because that is an extreme, mm. that is beyond everything. They sometimes in the lower leagues. They've got enough money, you know, they should, they should, should walk out of the game all set up. Mm. They should do. But I don't know, really. How much are they being advised in the lower leagues these days? I don't know. I don't know, Richard. Do you know? No, well, that's the issue, isn't it? And also, I think lower league football, obviously, it's a team game. But in some ways, it isn't. Because all those players are fighting to get that life-changing contract. And I suppose you've got to be single-minded in that approach. And maybe it's looked upon not as a weakness, but as though you're not single-minded enough if yeah. you start doing other courses. I'm not yeah. sure how it's perceived. Yeah. Well, that's it. I remember knocking on the door at uh, Lou Macari's door and saying, Gaffer, I'm going to have to take when, uh, Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons off. Mm. Why is that, son? Because I'm, I'm doing a course. I'm doing a college university degree. And they let me. They were quite good. But if you've got a manager that doesn't really... I mean, they've got to let players go and get educated somewhere else. But you're absolutely right. If mm. they're not, they've got to be more focused now than ever, I suppose. The mm. pressure is so much to get that life-changing contract and mum and dad pressure maybe as well, focus some on football and stuff. But, mm. And also, in, in the old days, we used to train in, we used to only train in the mornings um, most of the time. Mm. Now they're training, I think, all day, aren't they? They're doing afternoon sessions, it's weights, it's other coaching stuff they're doing. Um, yeah, and PR stuff they're learning yeah. to do and stuff. So I suppose there's not much time, but it's just an excuse, isn't it? I mean, there's plenty of time. We've all got the same 24 hours in the day. They can do stuff, and they should be equipped. I'd, you know, if I had a professional foot young lad alongside me now, you're a long time retired. Mm. You know, I thought at my age of 21, 22 that I would carry on playing football forever. You just don't, and time passes by so quickly. 
uh, and you're a very long time out of the game. Well, did you want to carry on playing for as long as you could, even though you were equipped to kind of move on? Because I think after Sheffield United, you were still you decided to go on trial. I think it was Bournemouth and Mansfield. And did you actually feel that with your pedigree in the game, you deserved a bit better than a trial? Yeah, that that yeah that did get me get my goat up a bit going to Bournemouth having a trial. Yeah, I'd lost all passion for football then. I really did, and and I was looking to get out as quick as possible. Right. I, you know, I don't miss football. And I, yeah, I, I look back at that and you just reminded me because I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, mm. I remember going for a trial. Are you good enough? <laughs> yeah, maybe he's looking to see if I've got the legs still, you know, and see if I'm fit enough. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. Bit disrespectful, I think, personally. But I don't hold a grudge at all. So well, no, because I mean, that it probably did you a favour because that takes us on nicely to the next stage of your working life and which must have been daunting in a way i mean how did you get into trading yeah um so i eventually busted a neck in the game at at, uh, sheffield united and i just knew i've got to do something else eventually i can't carry on football then i went to trials and so on and then i sort of i thought right i've had enough of this um body's falling apart i want to do something else i don't want to work for any for anyone Mm-hmm. Uh, my personality type that I am as an individual, I'm pretty like a free spirit. I just want to go and just do my own thing. And um, so I thought, learn, go through the education process again, start learning new stuff, self-development. And so I started learning how to trade. Flew to the US, um, got some mentors out there, paid many thousands to be taught how to trade the financial markets. Uh, I'd gone from the training ground and running around to a desk, which um, I'm doing the podcast on here um, from. Um, and then I started trading. And in the first 18 months, I was an absolute disaster. Uh, didn't know how to trade. So when I'm trading the markets, I'm basically buying stocks and shares or currency low and trying to sell higher. So I'm trying to you know, make a profit by buying things that are cheap or selling things that are overvalued. And I'm trying to do that over a period of time, maybe a day or a few weeks or a few months. So that's what I'm doing as a trader. But I'm just fascinated by the markets and the charts and the pictures from the charts and the patterns they make. Mm. And um, I had a passion for it. So it was the same process. You, you know, you learn, you start to learn how to do it. You make a f- fool of yourself doing it. You're a failure. And then that's your apprenticeship. And then you start to get better at doing it and not giving up and yeah. keep on going. And yeah. But even those first 18 months, you say, were a disaster. Was it still exciting, the learning process? And did you treat it almost like competition, similar to your football career? Oh, yeah, yeah. You've done your homework, haven't you, Richard, on me? Because, <laughs> I tell you, you know, you are bringing out some excellent things. Because, um, you know, I remember some guy saying to me, professional footballer traded the markets how ridiculous is that that was it that was enough for me that was it i'm gonna prove him wrong and um yeah that competitive edge so i just like got myself stayed up to three four o'clock in the morning educating looking at charts learning more grabbing pieces of information from different people paying somebody a few thousand to learn from them and then just found my own way and yeah absolutely that competitive edge made me want to sort of, uh, as I said, reinvent myself as a trader and, and be good at it. And mm. once you're good at it, you've got a skill for life. And similar to the Alan Ball football situation, have you had mentors who've really helped you along the way? Yeah, yeah. You have to have a mentor in everything. And definitely in trading, I've had mentors from the US 
London traders here. And but with trading, you never stop learning. Mm. But trading is like golf and trading is like football. I mean, you you got to have the skill to trade, and you got to implement that skill. And then there's the side of it which is about 70 percent of trading is the mindset psychology of handling a loss of losing money or handling a big trade mm. so for example today i'm in i'm in a really nice trade here that i'm doing i'm up about six seven hundred pounds in about two hours mm. and so the psychology around the that trade is fascinating do i stay in it do i get greedy and want to go for more or do i cut my profits so it's all about that and i think there's a lot of that in golf as well because i'm a big mm. golfer you need the skill and then you need the psychology to perform and with trading do you stick to an area of speciality or are you trying to give yourself a broad range of options mm. in terms of the type of things you're trading yeah well i look at charts so chart patterns and on a chart is where all the buyers and sellers are so mm. if the price is going up you'll see that on a chart price mm. will increase um, and these patterns repeat themselves because you're trading against other human beings and there's mm. lots of greed and fear on a chart. Uh, what goes up must come down and so on. So yeah, I can trade anything. I can, once you learn how to read a chart, I can trade uh, stocks and shares, uh, which most people listening to this probably be familiar with, you know, like Tesla shares, Apple shares, Google and, uh, you know, Lloyd's Bank. They're all like individual shares, but then I can trade the currency market. But once mm. you learn how to recharge you can trade basically any uh, any any market out there even cryptocurrencies which are quite popular okay but then there's obviously volatility with certain world events that are completely out of your control so surely in situations like that a, a generic chart doesn't help or is it a case of just being abreast of everything um well um Donald Trump, whatever the time that somebody's listening to this um, podcast, I mean, Donald Trump just came out of hospital yesterday in the stock markets around the world, uh, the US stock market indices, it was already priced in. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it was already showing a pattern where it was going to go down for several days because the, um, the president is at risk. Uh, and it's funny, the charts have a knack of showing things that are going to happen before they actually happen. Mm. It's like this crowd behavior, this horde mentality that happens on a chart. Mm. It's great. And, and yes, sometimes it doesn't happen. You do have to be abreast of all the news announcements. Yeah. But you're making trading decisions by the price on a chart. Right. Okay. That's the key. The price is king always. If it's going up, then the trend is up. If it's going down, the trend is down. You, okay. And then, then you don't worry about so much if there's a news announcement and the, and the trend continues up because... They work together then. You've got the news and, and the trend, which is really cool. Okay. That and, makes sense. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's really interesting to see how you operate literally from your office desk in, in Teddington, Twickenham. Um, whereas I think a lot of people would just assume that you, you're in the buy it, sell it in the city of London, kind of <laughs> yeah. market square, the square mile. Uh, mate, that's good old fashioned days, isn't it? I mean, I'm sitting in my, tra in my training gear. I've just come back from a cycling class at the club. Um, and, you know, I was watching the trades on my mobile phone once I finished. When I had a coffee, sat down and, and watched the trades on my, my app. Now I'm back to my trading desk here. I've got six screens, a big stand up desk that I can just roll up and down. Uh, and I'm seeing the global markets all around me trading. And um, it's just a vehicle to give me the freedom that mm. I want. 
So the vehicle, this is trading, making money, uh, trading, uh, gives me that freedom to take my kids to school, mm. pick them up, not be in the rat race, not going to the city, not wear yeah. suit and braids. I can't stand wearing suits, mate. <laughs> I mean, I'm a shorts man, and you know, I'm in yeah. the summer, I'm sitting here in my shorts and flip flops trading. Quite right too. But you've done the hard yards in terms of the learning that you've done, but you're also running courses so that other people can take advantage of this lifestyle choice. So. Give us an idea of how that course would run. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit of history. We started about 12 years ago, Trading College, and um, we just formalized the education then because I started t teaching individuals and we formalized it. Um, and we were very much one of the first education companies in the UK. And um, we all got qualified. We all became qualified technical analysts. And, uh, you know, and we, we mentor students. And now, I mean, I used to do everything those days everything you know answering the phone everything because it was just me then i brought a lady on who helped me and now we're just a big team we're over a million pound company now and mm. it's doing really really well uh, and then you know i just mentor students so my other coaches look at the beginners and help the beginners and support those guys with online courses uh or classroom courses as well not so much since covid hit mm. um and i mentor students individual students um to you know go on and, and do well individually, which I really enjoy. Mm. I really enjoy the, the coaching side of it, but the people that I've got to make sure that they want to learn. I can't mm. handle somebody who doesn't want to get good at this and mess it up. Um, you know, put the time and effort into it because if you put the time and effort into it, it's, it's a fabulous way of making some money mm. to give you the freedom or whatever you want to do. So yeah, yeah online stuff and, and classroom, it's, it's great. Yeah, the way forward. So what about football? Do you still watch it? Do you still keep abreast of it? Yeah, I'm a, as you say, as I said, I'm a big Tottenham fan. Um, you know, I watched the documentary recently, All or Nothing. But I was so pleased about that. And that because I felt the soul had gone out of football and the heart had gone out of football with tackling, players diving around, you know. But then you watch that um, All or Nothing and you saw Loris having a go at song, having a bit of a ding dong. Mm. And you saw that passion. You, and I thought that had gone out of the game, but it was really nice to see. Mm. Um, and I really enjoyed that documentary. Uh, I don't sort of, uh, Paul Merson lives around the corner and okay. I see Merce, you know, he's on Sky. And um, I, I don't really, I'm not on the ground level with football, Richard. I just watch it from afar. And uh, I've done some interviews with other things and I wrote a book goals to gold as well that yep. got a lot of publicity on talk sports and yep. BBC radio four which was really nice and there's another book coming out soon on the what? guess what psychology of trading oh fantastic <laughs> what what was the process like of writing that book uh really hard mm. I really I had somebody to help me mm. I did writing I did my writing it was a complete mess give it to that person they'll tidy it up um God, I felt so sorry for her you know, reading my, my work, um, but she enjoyed it. And, and we, and we got that done and there's some interviews as well, a bit of writing. So I didn't write every word of it, but it was all my story. And, yeah. um, but I did write, you know, a bits and pieces of it. And, um, the second book I'm writing myself. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was really, really interesting. It was one of those ticks in the box, mm. you know, um, I wanted to run a marathon. So I run the London marathon. Then I wanted to write a book. So I wrote the book. Um, and yeah, I got on Talk Sport, which is great. I listened to Talk Sport for years. I used to get on Talk Sport, 
got on BBC Radio 4, which I, they, you know, I got in trouble on that radio station by saying, I was being interviewed and the lady, in, it was the breakfast um, session, breakfast uh, st um, program. And uh, they were interviewing me about uh, the book and football and trading and gentleman said yeah so what's it you know what skills do you need i said well you know you don't need any skills to become a trader because you can learn this, you can learn to trade quite you could be, anyone could do it but you need skills to become to be a football player and this lady who was presented i can't remember her name quite famous looked up at me and gave me daggers because her husband's a trader in the city <laughs> and, and she was not happy <laughs> <laughs> I think she had a bit of a smirk though and took it back to him. Yeah, so that was that was an experience and that was good yeah. fun. But yeah, football's not really a thing at the moment. No. And just finally then, are you glad you played in your era or would you swap it for the sanitised version of football we see now? What a great question. Never really thought about that. Um, I, you know, I, I would love to have given myself a go. I see the defending now is shocking. You know, when I, I mean, come on. I mean, Man United the weekend against Tottenham, 6-2, whatever it was, 6-1 uh, or whatever. And then Aston Villa, Liverpool, big game again, so many goals. Defending is shocking. I mean, who is teaching these players to defend? So, yeah, I would like to give it a go and, and have a season in the Premiership. I really would. Um, but, yeah, I look back and I think I had a great time. Met some great people. had great experiences. I wouldn't swap it for the world. I, I don't miss it one bit. I, I do miss... I speak to my mates from football and um, hopefully we'll catch up for a few beers soon. Um, but I don't miss, I don't miss it one bit. Yeah. Uh, I've done it. I've, you know, I've, you've got to reinvent yourself and that's what I've done. And I'm somewhere else now, Richard, and yeah. probably enjoying uh, life from afar, really. No, it's quite obvious to see Lee. Really, really pleased for you. And it's been fantastic. Uh meeting you virtually and because i work do a lot of my work around the corner from you i'm sure we can have a pint in the waldergrove pub in swickenham sometime <laughs> soon definitely definitely richard been a pleasure thank you very much i hope you enjoyed what i thought was a fascinating chat with lee and i'll certainly be taking him up on that offer of a pint in twickenham hopefully he'll have had a good day on the trading floor when i meet him and i might even get a bite to eat out of him now, if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, then please give us a nice review. In fact, you don't even have to write anything. Just click five stars and that really helps football fans to find us. You don't exactly get a big marketing budget for making these podcasts, so all help greatly appreciated. Thanks once again for tuning in to Footballers Lives. And remember also to check out the timeless back catalogue from season one, where I spoke to the likes of Danny Murphy, Paul Parker, Brian Dean, Michael Thomas, and of course... Andy Cole. See you next time. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.